Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first Duck of Minerva podcast of 2023. I'm very glad to be back here with uh, Jared Hayes and Daniela Lai, um, the three musketeers, if you will. We are back to discuss an important new geopolitical question, something that came up uh, at the end of last year, but in true academic fashion, we've been mulling over for the last two or three months over vacation. Um, and that's the loss and damage fund that was agreed to at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, the international climate negotiations. Uh, this is a fund, we don't yet know all the details about it, but this is a fund that uh, that was agreed to by um, the parties at the negotiation, including the European Union, the United States, China, and a large range of, of more vulnerable countries. It's a fund to compensate uh, for climate loss and damage. This has been a sticking point at previous negotiations, and it's also something that's of interest to all three of us. Um, sort of sits at the intersection of our research interests in socioeconomic justice, uh, global justice, and the legacy of violence in international politics, and Jared's work as well on climate change in, in recent years. So I wanted to start just by asking you guys, what do we know about this new loss and damage fund, and why is it interesting for us as IR people to be discussing it? Yes, what do we know? We don't know, as you were saying, a lot about this because it was agreed at the very last minute of the negotiations at COP27. Um, the, it was the European Union towards the end of the summit that agreed to the loss and damage fund on the basis that it would be targeted to the most vulnerable, which we don't exactly know what that means as well. Uh, and we don't know how the fund will work and how it will be uh, funded and uh, how the money would be uh, distributed. Um, I think the other thing we, we know is that the United States has always been quite skeptical of um, funding mechanisms like these, um, especially when um, they really resist the language of uh, reparations. So, so one question that for me is particularly interesting that we're going to discuss today is um, uh, whether a loss and damage fund can be considered reparations. Um, or not. Um, and we can see that there is a, a divide between developing countries that really fought for the fund and developed countries like the EU and the US that have uh, seemed to have agreed to it, but have been a bit reticent. I don't think I, I have too much to add to that. It's clearly poorly developed at this point. I mean, the breakthrough is that they agreed that the the emitting countries agreed to put themselves on the hook for something in terms of loss of damage because they've been rejecting this language for many cops now uh it was you know this was the this was the loss and damage year for sure but the issue has come up in previous cops and the emitting countries the developed countries have rejected it but you know as of right now there is very little money i think you know the canadians threw in a few bucks. The Europeans, a few European countries have thrown in a few bucks. But it's, it's, the breakthrough is the language. The breakthrough is the idea being in the communique, the COP communique, rather than anything concrete that's been put in place. Daniela, you make a great point that we should address this question head on. Um, this has been termed in the news climate reparations. I've seen in the New York Times that they characterized it as, as climate reparations. And um, right-wing actors across the globe, including the Republicans in the United States, have derided it as climate reparations. So the first thing I want to ask is, do we think this is this agreement amounts to climate reparations? And if so, why? Um, this is something that's been of particular interest to me because I've been working on a paper on international reparations, but I want to hear your thoughts first, and then I'll see if, I, um, if mine are still relevant after. <laughs> It's a very interesting question, and I guess we don't know yet because we still don't have the details about how the loss and damage fund will work. Um, but the question for me then 
is what are the payments for? Like, what is the kind of thinking that informs the idea of a loss and damage fund? And coming at this question with as someone with a background in you know, transitional justice, where reparations are one of the tools that are used to um, redress the legacies of violence and injustice, I guess I would have some considerations based on that. Um, so, you know, I guess what what it matters is the understanding of justice that underpins the loss and damage fund, you know, and the reparations usually are considered to be um, linked to the idea of restorative or reparative justice, where the idea is that you are you know, compensating a specific harm, uh, acknowledging that there has been a wrong and then compensating it. And I think that there are countries and the group of 77 that pushed for the loss and damage fund that sees the loss and damage fund in this light. And I'm not sure that other powerful countries who have been asked to contribute to the fund and set it up um, agree and see this in the same light. So this is maybe my first consideration. And I'll... Yeah, I, I, a lot depends on, as you're suggesting, Daniela, the architecture that's put into place around this, both the intentionality as well as how that intentionality gets translate translated into uh, not just the verbiage around loss and damage, but the actual um, legal architecture around this. So I think the United States in particular, but also many developing countries would like loss and damage to sit alongside adaptation and mitigation as a third uh, leg of a climate change tripod that is does not suggest culpability, responsibility, or guilt. And we can get into that language, but rather is just a thing, right? So acknowledge that in order to deal with climate change, you have to mitigate, you have to adapt to uh, changes and there are going to be changes that are going to cause consequences and those consequences are understood in terms of loss and damage and so there's not really any legal obligation any moral responsibility of the developing or the developed countries to contribute money they will contribute money as they see fit just as they have for mitigation and adaptation I mean, if you look at adaptation the developed countries committed to a hundred billion a year and have not hit that ever. So clearly, there's a sense of, well, we commit, but it's uh, sort of a, not an obligation, it's we're, we're doing you a favor, developing world by giving you this money, and we either will hit our marks, or we won't hit our marks, but either way, you get over it, right? So that's one kind of architecture. The other is more along the lines of what you're suggesting, that there is a responsibility, an accountability, that applies to the developed countries, the, 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 the historical and, and current emitters that obligates them to support developing or vulnerable countries with resources to address damage caused by climate change. And that's a, that's a whole different kettle of fish. And, I, and the loss and damage as it's set up, at least my understanding, as it's set up in the COP27 communique is doesn't commit to one side or the other, right? It's just, oh, we're going to have a fund. What's the language? What's the architecture? We don't know yet. I think you guys did a really, from my my reading of, of what both of you said there, um, I think you guys did a really good job of highlighting just how um, there are so many sort of competing concepts here, guilt, culpability, responsibility, reparation, restorative justice. And they're all somewhat adjacent, but the as we parse the the lines between them, uh, we kind of realize that they have widely different implications. So to return to the question of are these climate reparations, um, the way I've been thinking about reparations, at least, is that it's sort of, they're sort of a two part uh, phenomenon. Um, they, you know, there's there's a wide range of definitions in the literature, but my understanding is that they they entail sort of a backward looking component. Component, which is rec recognition of past wrongdoing and a forward-looking component, which is compensation to be used for future purposes. So if that's the case, then I'd say this loss and damage fund is, at least as we currently understand it, 
are not it does not constitute reparation because there is no recognition of wrongdoing. And I think, you know, some of the ambiguity I've seen in the language around this relates to whether the loss and damage fund is meant to is is purely forward looking. Is it meant to compensate um, for future loss and damages? So the the wealthier states and the larger emitters that signed on for it uh, to it and were most reluctant to sign on to it, did they agree to this idea of in the future funding later loss and damages that may occur and not taking any responsibility for the climate emissions that that caused them? Or are the loss and damages, is the, is the sort of purpose of the fund in recognition of the idea that loss and damage has already been taking place and that they're there are there's compensation that needs to be backward looking. So I think until those things are sort of hammered out, we can't really consider this reparation. Doesn't mean it's not necessarily a positive step in the or a step in the right direction towards reparations potentially. But um, I think uh, my understanding of uh, the carve outs that especially the United States secured around um, refusing to accept any form of liability mean that. We can't really understand this as reparations, but rather as, as a political negotiation. So that leads to the next question that I have, which is sort of how do we understand the debts here, whether they're reparative debts, whether they're not necessarily even debts per se, is it funding, is it voluntary funding, will that be enough? How much money should be in this fund? Where should it come from? And how should we understand, or how should we even think about how to distribute it? Those are big questions, but I, I'll let you guys uh, try and tackle them. I'm gonna throw in something here. Um, so something, this is related. I, mean, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but something that's been bothering me, right? The Economist ran a leader you know, a couple months ago, 1.5 is dead, two, we should shift emphasis to two. And to me that, this raises this question of where, at what point does accountability or guilt or responsibility kick in? Is it 0.1 degrees Celsius change before uh, compared to pre-industrial levels? Is it 0.2? Is it 1? 1, 1.5? And, and the insidious suggestion I think The Economist is making is that we can just get rid of 1.5 and move on to 2. And that's okay, that there's nothing really we can shift our accountability to two degrees easily that this is just an arbitrary thing. And, you know, I, I don't know anybody besides a white person in Northern Europe who could say that, right? Because I don't think for, for Bangladeshis or for other vulnerable, not to pick on Bangladesh, but you know, they're like three inches above sea level in Dhaka or whatever, the vulnerable populations around the world, that shift from 1.5 to two is hugely significant. And there is a tremendous amount of wrong done to them in terms of physical consequences if we shift our policymaking oriented towards two degrees Celsius rather than 1.5. And so it seems to me that 1.5, if we establish that at 1.5 things really start to get hairy, that every degree step above 1.5 is an even more egregious wrong than the wrongs done before 1.5, and you can't just move that. It makes perfect sense, and I think it for me that underscores even more the absurdity of having a loss and damage fund where um, wrongdoing is not acknowledged as part of the underpinning of the fund. Like, what does it even mean that we are funding uh, damages incurred by countries subject to, um, you know, the harmful effects of uh, emissions produced by developed countries if we're not acknowledging that they are responsible for this wrong? Because for me, that also uh, entails a commitment to you know, stop and redress and change course of action. And a focus, I'm, I'm afraid that, focusing on loss and damage as a simply a mechanism to help countries um, rebuild after a destructive uh, flood um, won't really do the trick at all. Yeah, I, I think what you guys are saying is really interesting. And I would also add that I, I started talking about this topic um, with friends in anticipation of the podcast. And there's this misconception, I think, among a lot of people that, um, you know, uh, it's it's difficult to assess liability because people didn't know 
when they were emitting. You know, during the Industrial Revolution, for example, we didn't know about uh, climate damage. But in reality, you know, most of the emissions uh, have occurred in the last, you know, four decades since we've, the climate science has actually been pretty far out ahead. And um, I'm, uh, I'm trying to find the citation right now, but we sent around in anticipation of uh, this, this session, um, a recent article in Science um, that looked at some uh, projections that ExxonMobil made going back to the 1980s. And they were pretty accurate. They knew um, how climate change was progressing. They knew about the the impact of carbon emissions, and you know, actually had pretty great modeling. And yet, publicly, were denying the impact of climate change and obfuscating and contributing to political campaigns to discredit climate science. So, when we think about liability, you know, obviously, knowledge is a big part of that. Knowing what impact you're having, and I think this is where we really need to put the the onus on the powerful actors that did have the information that were you know making profits and and reaping benefits off of emissions but at the same time uh at the same time i'm i'm cognizant of the fact that if you actually do calculate some of the you know the amounts that uh, of loss and damage that um that have already occurred and that will likely occur in in the next few years they're far greater than the market capitalization of Exxon and all the oil companies combined. You know, we're just dealing with staggering totals here. And so given that reality, that, you know, the the amount that we're, uh, one projection I saw in an article in Climatic Change is um, about 11% of GDP um, in terms of damage, just just um, attributable to the major five emitters, the US, China, um, I believe the United Kingdom, um, which is all to say that, you know, if loss and damage, if the amounts we're talking about are so enormous, how do we think about this fund, which you know has gotten, as you said, a couple bucks here and there um, in funding so far? And how how do we reconcile these two things? There's another issue here, which is, and you suggest it with the Exxon, which is culpability, responsibility. Well, so I'm as I mentioned to both of you, I'm reading. Eichmann in Jerusalem for my human rights class this semester, which I've never read before. Um, and uh, you know, embedded in this is this question of responsibility versus guilt. Guilt applying to actors who undertake directly harmful actions like Eichmann, but also responsibility to the German people, many of whom, uh, when the, you know, now have all of whom now, uh, presuming all the Nazis are dead, didn't participate in the wrongs against the Jews, but still bear responsibility for the actions of their of their predecessors. And so this question of responsibility, guilt, to some degree, all Americans are guilty of emissions, and as well as all high-emitting industrialized democracy, mostly democracies, China being the exception, uh, are guilty. But that guilt is um, not uniform. So uh, the CEO of ExxonMobil should bear a much higher degree of guilt than uh, a poor uh, subsistence farmer in the, the bayous of Louisiana, uh, where they may not have access to clean water and a whole bunch of other issues. And so there's this issue, as well as then the issue of responsibility going back, as you say, decades, the poor in the United States, as well as other developing developed countries bear much less responsibility. So how do we, if we reject collective responsibility that we really want to apportion guilt or responsibility to those who bear it, how do we think about this in the context? And then just another twist, the United States is also suffering loss and damage, ironically, right? I mean, if you look at projections, the U.S. is going to be uh, lose about a trillion dollars a year in GDP by 2100 on current emissions trajectories. There are, my wife works on, on issues of resilience, climate resilience. There are Native American tribes in the bayous of Louisiana who do not have access to clean water, who are, who are having to be moved 
inland because their the island they live on is eroding out from underneath them. So they are certainly suffering loss and damage as well. So to who like it's it's strange, right? That the United States is both tremendously guilty, but also a victim. Some portions of the United States, not the CEO of ExxonMobil, but some substantial populations in the United States are also victims of the very same phenomenon that's victimizing developing countries, very vulnerable populations around the world. So this, it, it seems to me there's a, this is a, this is a, a, a more difficult issue to resolve obviously, than uh, past exemplars of reparations, where you have not a clean cut, but a cleaner cut, a, a perpetrator and victim. And so the directionality of responsibility or the directionality of guilt is a little bit more, a little easier to establish. Is that wrong? I'm not sure I agree. Entirely with that, just because I thought when I was reading for the podcast to prepare for the podcast about debates around reparations for slavery, and I think that there are some similarities there, especially in the development of what we're discussing now, which is studies, scientific studies that try to quantify exactly how much countries are owed, um, and this kind of thing is it may be new when it comes to climate science but it isn't entirely new because we've had a research on um trying to quantify reparations for slavery within the us that also gave estimates in the trillions uh, or also to quantify um the damage done the economic impact of slavery on the economic development on of the whole of the african continent um done and this is I think this is also a very complex exercise because you would think that you have an, a point in time where slavery ends and that makes it easier to identify the immediate victims of slavery and maybe their descendants, but it does not um, help us um, understand or assess the continued impact that the legacies of slavery and discrimination have had since then. And so that is what then makes the calculations difficult and um, the numbers so high, and overall, it still also hasn't led to reparation programs for slavery. So that is also, I guess, a cautionary tale on uh, um, this debate on what we are calling attribution science uh, in uh, with respect to the loss and damage fund and climate science today. Yeah, I I want to agree with Danielle, and I'm very sorry. I don't mean to team up on you, but uh, disagree with some of the points you're making, and I want to do so specifically with reference to the Holocaust and Eichmann in Jerusalem. Um, so one of the reasons I'm not the biggest fan of Eichmann in Jerusalem, I don't think it's, um, is because, I don't think it's the best example of Arendt's work, is because uh, the the structure of it, um, the structure she uses is to go country by country and look at sort of uh, different regimes, relationships to to European Jewry. So, you know, she goes um, saying the Romanians uh, versus the Hungarians versus the Italians. And, and that's sort of the, the way the, the narrative of the book is structured in addition to moving through the trial. And I think that's actually not the most productive way to think about the transnational uh, nature of the crimes committed, the, the Holocaust. One thing that, and here I'm sort of taking my uh, uh, some ideas from Iris Marion Young on structural injustice and even Robert Brandon's work on intentionality and sort of the social nature of intentionality. We tend to think about um, about justice and it, or default to a position that looks at justice in terms of interaction. And it, we have this sort of implicit legalistic framework where we think about victims and perpetrators, whether they're individual victims and perpetrators, or sometimes we use corporate agents like ExxonMobil or the Germans, Germany or Romania. And I think whether she intends to or not, some of Arendt's framing uh, leads to that. But what Brandom shows is that actually intentionality is a sort of more socially mediated attribute. It's something that he calls it the a product of the game of giving and asking for reasons. And so when you actually look at um, the 
for example, the Holocaust in Europe, there's actually a lot of sort of social norm construction that led to saving Jewish lives and 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 facilitating the mass murder of Jews in different parts of uh, of Europe. And they weren't all contingent on the actions of of whoever was in in power. Um, a lot of the times it was it was the way different communities dealt with it. It was the way that um, you know more local governments dealt with it, the way even Nazi administrators in different areas did. So how does this cash out in terms of reparations? I think uh, for better or worse, reparations for the Holocaust are the sort of peak example that we use in international relations of successful international of a successful effort, whether they were successful or not, it's debatable, but they're certainly the most prominent and uh, and likely the least controversial. Well, actually, if you look at the reparations package, packages that West Germany paid after World War II, they, first of all, they didn't use any sort of attribution research. They didn't try and quantify the loss and damages of European Jewry. Actually, the agreement that West Germany signed with Israel, the Luxembourg Agreement in 1952, they calculated the amount that Israel would have had to spend to resettle Jewish refugees. And West Germany just agreed to pay two thirds of it, assuming that East Germany was responsible for a third and West Germany was responsible for two thirds. So in essence, they sort of had a, a somewhat arbitrary uh, sort of focal point that they could plant a flag in and say, this is the number we're going to use. And then in addition to that, because that was an imperfect solution and you know not all Holocaust um, survivors settled in Israel, they um, added the claims conference in for, and gave a, a smaller lump sum to the claims conference to distribute to Holocaust survivors around the world. So what kind of a lesson does that give us? Well, I think the attribution science that we're seeing, these efforts to calculate loss and damages and attribute them to individual actors, whether they're corporations like Exxon or individual states, you know, they're informative and they can potentially serve as a focal point in debate, but but the decision on how to fund these things is going to be political and it's going to have to be, it's going to, there's going to have to be some artful political maneuvering um, and compromises made. And ultimately the numbers that we're looking at for the amount of damage are just far too big to even imagine a reparations program. Um, I think, you know, if you if you look at the multi-trillion dollar figures that some of this attribution research are turning up, I would love to see, uh, you know, people compensated for that amount of loss and damage. It's just not really feasible in my mind. And I don't know that forcing a transfer of wealth that amounts to, you know, 15, 20% of global GDP in, in the span of a few years, if that is a path forward to reconciliation, which has to be a secondary goal of any reparations program. Um, can I just add one thing? I think the other thing where I actually like agree with Jared is that it's more complex than just saying the United States is uniformly kind of responsible for this amount of damage and that risks obscuring the loss and damage happening within the United States and the vulnerable groups that live there. And that is also a product of the of the state system. And that may be the mechanisms we think in this context to address loss and damage should try to go beyond that. And I'm not sure to what extent uh, the, the way loss and damage is being thought of now is it, or imagined now is able to do that. Um, and the other thing that I think this really highlights for me is that this attribution science is still kind of based on the idea or it works on the basis of statistical models that try to isolate the impact of one thing uh, and then calculate it and assess it and then establish policy on the basis of it. And I think that is tricky because at least in the way I understand the social world, like historical processes of environmental damage are not isolated from other processes that were occurring alongside them, and then they compounded each other. Um, so, you know, colonialism and, and imperialism were happening together with environmental damage and extraction and economic exploitation. And 
accepting that it is possible or that it is right to really to isolate the impact of one specific thing to me that seems a little bit artificial and and just so that the figures and the policy that might result from that would also really not address the whole problem in its complexity um so i'm not sure that gives us really a political solution but i don't think that we will get a political solution through uh, this kind of um attribution science and through uh, limiting our focus to a state-based system. Something you just said there, uh, the state-based system, I mean, that ties into something I've really been wrestling with and that, that also ties in with your discussion of the Holocaust as sort of the exemplar of reparations, Adam, um, which is that, that I don't, I really struggle with how well if the Holocaust is the is the benchmark, whether it was successful or not, it is the it's it's the benchmark. In the same way that the Montreal Protocol is the benchmark for for establishing what a what a functional quote unquote successful uh, multilateral international environmental agreement looks like. We got rid of chlorofluorocarbons. We saved the ozone. Yay! Um, the the you know, the Holocaust reparations represent a high watermark or something that approximates success, right? You had a, an aggressor or a guilty party compensate a victim party. But, you know, that compensation was channeled through the state system. So it was the West Germans paying basically the Israelis. You mentioned that there was a claims conference or claims, some sort of claims adjudication which was sort of secondary, but it was really a transfer of funds from one state to another state. Whereas the Holocaust, as you point out in your critique of Arendt, or you're suggesting in your critique of Arendt, was not a state, you know, one, Germans did this to the Romanians or, the, or whatever, right? It was this transnational crime against an entire, entire populations, not just the Jews, the Roma, et cetera. Um, and so that it, it wasn't, a state against a state. It was a state, in this case, the German uh, Third Reich against a transnational group of people. And so that got channeled into a kind of a state to state. And I something similar is happening with climate change, right? Loss and damage is about not really about vulnerable populations. It's about transfer of resources from developed states, historical emitters to non-historical vulnerable states but how those states i mean this is part of this has come up uh, usually in critic by crit critics of loss and damage how those states use those funds who knows right it's not it's not actually going to the vulnerable pop vulnerable populations it's going to states who are then presumed to deal with the vulnerable populations in some sort of good way but tying into your point daniela you know, climate change, multiple environmental things can be happening simultaneously, right? So if you have a state that has a history of doing poor agricultural pro, uh, practices and climate change pushes them over the edge into, into famine, how much of that is climate change? But also how much can you trust that state, which has exercised poor agricultural practices in the past, to understand that it itself has some responsibility to those populations that have been damaged like it's, um, I don't know, it, it seems to me that was very convoluted. Let me see if I can boil this down. One, uh, I'm not sure that, my primary point is, I'm not sure the state system is capable of dealing with climate change. And this is something I really wrestle with. And I don't know how the conduct of international relations changes, how we think about justice in a scenario where kind of the fundamental underlying physical reality that humans have evolved into is shifting underneath our feet. I just don't think either the state system or the study of international relations based on the state system is capable of dealing with that. The closest parallel I can come up with is colonialism, but there was, to my knowledge, no reparations from colonialism, really, no system. I mean, maybe, maybe there was a one-off thing or here or there, but 
the British didn't run around paying the Indians and the all you know the 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 mandate territories in the Middle East and wherever else every other place that the the British exercised colonial powers for all the damages that they did they just were like okay well see you guys later and that seems to me something of that magnitude is what we're talking about here and we just have no we have no we have no benchmark. The Holocaust is inadequate. As, as awful as it was, the Holocaust is inadequate. To make matters worse, I think that there, uh, I agree with you that the, the state system as a model, as sort of the methodol, <laughs> let me rephrase, methodological nationalism as a sort of funnel for these larger concerns of, of justice is entirely inadequate. And to make matters worse, I think, um, We've seen historically that efforts to bypass the rigidities of the state system for the purpose of reparations have been sometimes equally problematic. So we, here I'm referencing, um, in a lot of the literature I've seen on this loss and damage fund, they're talking about this sort of mosaic solution where there's different types of funding mechanisms to address different types of loss and damage. Some will be targeted at individuals, families, corporations, states. Well, I'm thinking specifically about the UN Compensation Commission after Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, um, which also had this sort of multi-tiered mosaic of possibilities for compensation. And uh, so individuals, companies, uh, um, states could all uh, apply for loss and damages uh, on the basis of environmental degradation, uh, you know, loss of profits for tourism, all sorts of different things. And from what I've been reading, um, I've read some pretty compelling accounts of, of UNCC that show that it's, you know, also rife for abuse by states. Um, and it also turned into an incredibly punitive uh, tar uh, mechanism to siphon funds out of Iraq and impoverish Iraqi people and led to a terrible human rights situation, um, coupled with the sanctions regime that was meant to target Saddam Hussein's regime, but actually ended up uh, leading to a lot of death and and <laughs> destruction in Iraq. Um, so I think, you know, for all the, uh, the ink spilled about imaginative solutions for overcoming the limitations of the state system, I think that, you know, state-centric uh, state power politics does have a tendency in these situations to make, uh, to make, make these mechanisms less effective. So, yeah, and, and I think that just, it does raise this question of we have very few examples of successful reparations arrangements historically, and they're all kind of problematic. If the high watermark was reparations through the Holocaust, what does that tell us? Because that's certainly controversial in some quarters. Okay, I have something to add, but Let's see if it makes sense. I think that if we go look at examples of reparations arrangements, even within states, the problem does not like change massively from the one that we've been discussing in terms of state, international state politics. Um, because reparations in say post-conflict context or post-authoritarian context, there a similar thing tends to happen that powerful actors hijack the purposes of reparation programs or they become of a kind of second order of importance following other things um, and sacrificed uh, at the expense, so sacrificing um, reparations in order to um, for political and economic goals, let's say. Uh, and in general, this for me comes from a, from a general tendency to uh, avoid using these kind of mechanisms, including reparations for the purpose of redistributing not only wealth, but power in, in these kind of transitions. And I, I don't think that we should think of, uh, of, of climate change as a, that different from these kind of political and economic transitions that we see in countries that have been affected by other forms of mass violence uh, because they still they still disturb this political equilibrium 
Um, and this is where then, you know, the problems lie. So in, in the end, in a lot of cases, reparations are then used uh, or they are changed and they become something different in order to minimize the acknowledge the component that we've identified before, which is the acknowledgement of the past wrong uh, and their forward-looking kind of redistributive function. Um, so they can either be become something like aid, which as we know, even internationally is used in a way that is always conditional to certain uh, specific things or conditions being met, uh, or it can become even used as a form of uh, welfare support. So if I think about the case that I've researched the most, uh, like in, in Bosnia, for example, after the war, payments that were made to uh, to victims were always, they ended up becoming a, a, for, a form of welfare more than uh, actual um, compensation for past harm. Um, and, and so this, for me, changes the nature of, of the payments. And this has also been identified in some of the literature on this topic. Um, from being reparations that have this kind of reparations have this kind of political and economic meaning, they become something different. And I think what we're witnessing when it comes to discussions around the loss and damage is a really a discussion around, you know, do we really want to accept the political importance of a term like reparations and what it means and the implications it has? And I think the answer is that developed countries, the European Union countries and the United States don't. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have a group of countries that is pushed for the loss and damage fund that want, that would be more, would be happier with this language of reparations because they want these political implications acknowledged. I want to ask this point you raise about reparations versus welfare, right? So my sense is that reparations are backward looking for injury done in the past. And since the examples that we have mostly involve um, dead people, uh, you know, the person is is dead, right? And their families, or, or they suffered some injury. So they were in coming back to the Holocaust, which I may regret having injected into this conversation, but nonetheless, coming back to the Holocaust, they were in one of the concentration camps and they survived, but they are entitled to compensation uh, or, or uh, justice because they suffered horribly. But that's the suffering stops at some point, right? They leave Treblinka and then they are done with that. Or, they, or if somebody's family member is dead, the person is dead and that is a, marks a point in the past. Whereas welfare you seem to be suggesting isn't a future into the future, right? You're, the, the injury was suffered but the the compensation is for going for like sustenance or sustainment into the future, and that these two are these two are separate things. So I, I, I want to ask you to unpack that, and the reason I want to ask you to unpack that is something I'm struggling with here. So loss and damage suggests stuff that's suggests stuff that's already happened, right? Two trillion, Adam, you referenced like two trillion dollars to date, uh, applicable to the United States, and six trillion to the historical emitters. But loss and damage is also ongoing, right? It didn't stop today. It's going to continue, even if we stopped emitting carbon dioxide at this very moment, carbon dioxide, methane, other greenhouse gases. It would the the loss and damage would continue into the future. Um, until a new climate equilibrium is reached. And so it's not, it's not in the past. The, the injury, again, if we stop right now, the injury, the actions that cause injury may have stopped at this moment, but the actual injuries continue on and on and on and on for the rest of my lifetime, for the rest of my children's lifetime. So I don't know. Does it make sense why I'm pushing you to, I, I'm, I'm curious about this distinction and how it changes the political dynamic in the context of justice. Um, so I'm not sure that the injury necessarily stops when, I mean, I guess, you know, if we're looking at death in that sense, in the sense that the person is dead, but I do think, like I see 
these forms of violence as having a more of long-term and continuing impact. Um, so on reparation specifically, like I think maybe Adam has also read this um, work by John Torby and how he describes this relationship between the backward or the backward looking and the forward looking dimensions of reparations. And you can, I think he says that the backward looking reparations are usually more linked to commemorative projects um, for past harm and then forward looking reparation claims have to stem from the idea that past injustice continued to cause harm ever since it was committed. And so reparations also have the goal to transform current conditions of injustice. And for me, the, the question with reparations is not whether one or the other dimension is present or whether the dimensions are both present or one is absent, is whether it's the balance between the two, because I think they are kind of always there. Uh, but when I when I talk about the difference between say reparations and aid and reparation as welfare is the kind of underpinning uh, logic of it because it, if you are paying people compensation as a, a reparation for the harm done there is an acknowledgement of the harm that has been done if you are giving someone aid you're giving them aid and you are probably making it conditional on some things. If you're giving them welfare, the purpose of the payment is not necessarily linked to the acknowledgement of the wrongdoing. It's a kind of support for their everyday life that is needed because, you know, it might be needed because they have lost something in the past, but that's not what the payment is necessarily linked to. In, in the theory underpinning it kind of it's likely different. And so in the case that I was referring to in Bosnia, this is like exactly what has been discussed in the literature, is this tension between these payments for, say, victims of sexual violence during the war uh, as a, a form of wealth, welfare because of the way they've been set up, then a form of reparation that acknowledges um, the harm that was suffered by, by the victims. I hope that answers your question, Gerald. Yeah. I, I just want to build on what you said because I agree with I agree with a lot of it and there's something that you said that I really want to draw out. The first point is um, that so Torpy's book is called Making Whole What Has Been Smashed, right? And I think that idea of of reparations as bringing you to status quo ex ante makes a lot of sense in a legalistic framework where there's a clear victim and perpetrator, where um, you know you don't have these sort of irreparable things like like death. You know, I steal $200 from you and I give you back $200 with interest, whatever it is. I think as you scale up to these global transnational issues, it makes less and less sense and becomes more and more of a red herring. Uh, this idea of restoring status quo ex ante. I think uh, my understanding of reparations in contrast to aid and welfare is that they, the power dynamic is built on the idea of recognition of past wrongdoing. So there is sort of a moral high ground um, to the party receiving reparations that wouldn't necessarily be there in the case of aid. In the case of aid, oftentimes the recipient of aid, you know, has to uh, accept whatever conditions are placed on it. And I think that reconfigured power dynamic, when, when there is recognition of, of wrongdoing, you can reconfigure the power dynamic. And that's where the real potential for change is. I know in the last comment I made, it sort of um, it sounded like a, the most pessimistic version of a realist saying that realpolitik always corrupts reparations. But I think there is possible, uh, poss there, there is potential for change and a lot of it has to do with reconfiguring power dynamics. So one thing that struck me about this loss and damage fund, and I'm really interested to hear your take on this, is that it was spearheaded by Pakistan um, alongside a group of other countries that are particularly vulnerable to climate change. They then um, got a major boost from, from China advocating their position. The European Union then signed on to it and eventually the US acquiesced. Um, that strikes me as a sort of unusual set of arrangements or an unusual domino effect to take place within international negotiations. And maybe I'm being sort of Pollyannish here, but maybe we're seeing um, in this loss and damage fund just a sort of little, little uh, tiny little buds of, um, some new power dynamics, some new global relationships that might 
you know, we're a long way off from tackling the enormity of this issue, but maybe we see some potential there. Um, and so I'm curious if you guys see that or if you think that this is just, um, you know, power politics under another name. I tend to be very skeptical of the Chinese in these contexts. Um, uh, so my read on it is the U.S. lagging behind is not surprising in any way. Uh, the EU kind of reluctantly but not being dragged with the same force as the United States also makes sense. Uh, the EU is... I my wife and I have published on this, the EU has positioned itself as part of the reason the EU exists has become to deal with climate change. And so the EU would come on board, even if uh, the implications, the financial implications are quite significant for them. Uh, but again, because the architecture is not in place, and I like, I really like Daniela's distinction between aid and reparations, that the, it that's a really nice way of putting what I very awkwardly put earlier, which is loss and damages aid versus loss and damages reparations. I think the EU is fine with loss and damages aid because this, this distinction has not been fixed yet. Um, it, it's implied, certainly, but in terms of the actual architecture of the fund and the legal responsibilities that append to it, I think it's not fixed yet. And so I think the EU signs on and says this is aid but the EU also has, at least um, if Germany is the heart of the EU, the EU also has more experience coming to terms with collective responsibility, a la the Holocaust, than the United States does. We just don't do it, right? Oh, uh, Native Americans? What? Did we do something to them? I don't know anything about that, right? Uh, so uh, reparations for slavery? Well, everybody's equal now that we've had a black president, so... You know, there's nothing to see here. So Americans don't do this well. But um, the Chinese signing on to this, to me, I mean, the Chinese are have profound responsibilities. They're not historical emitter in the sense that they were not emit. They didn't. Their emissions didn't really crank up until 1990 or so, 2000. You know, the 1990 to 2000 transition. So they're a historical emitter over the over decades rather than centuries, century plus. But they're still the second first the largest emitter contemporaneously and um, their emissions are not going to peak anywhere near in the timeline necessary for 1.5 maybe two but um, the Chinese bear are bear responsibility bear increasing responsibility but by signing on to this initiative this is part of their stick of actually no we're a developing country we're, we're alongside the Pakistanis and these other vulnerable populations. We're a developing country. We're not one of these historical emitters like the Europeans or the Americans. And so, yes, we support this because if we support it, we can't possibly be a guilty party, right? We're a victim just like all Pakistan, when in reality, that's not true. Um, and so that's my, I, that's my cynical read on what the Chinese are doing here. So I, I don't see it as a power... I don't see this as the Chinese stepping up and saying, yeah, well, yes, we have responsibility too, and we are going to take that responsibility or guilt. We're going to take charge of that and lead the way on reparations as a means of reconfiguring the international system. This is them kind of tying in with the developing. This is their stick that they've done for decades. We're a developing country, the West, the United States, Europe, evil oppressors, colonial, et cetera. We are victims like the rest of you guys and should be seen in the same light. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's my take on well, it. Well, just to, to follow up very quickly, and then I, I, I don't want to interrupt, but uh, I, for me, the more interesting dynamic is that there was this coalition of self-identified vulnerable countries, countries that you know normally don't have particularly strong diplomatic ties, sort of you can think of it as a new instantiation of the non-aligned movement that actually achieved a, a you know a major win at this international negotiation. So the the fact that the dominoes of China, the European Union, and the U.S. fell afterwards. My I guess my question is more. I, I appreciate your take on on your your cynicism on the the Chinese intentions, but whether there's you know whether that's a new dynamic, the the success of this. I, they, I, I know there's the V20 group, but it's now it encompasses far more countries than that. I see what you're saying. No, I, I think this is a 
this is something I've been wrestling with or, or toying with, and eventually I'll get to doing something on it, which is the, the ways in which climate change is, is re-empowering relatively small, relatively weak states. But this, it does tie into what we're talking about here. How are they being empowered? It's through moral discourses. It's through, you know, Pakistan says, look, a third of our country was underwater. And whose fault is that? It's not our fault. It's, you know, we've emitted negligible amount of, of greenhouse gas emissions historically or even contemporaneously. So whose fault is this? It's not ours. And so they're, they are able to parlay that into political capacity in the international system. Yes, I do agree with that. Um, whether it marks a sea change, this comes back to my, my intuition that climate change is going to reconfigure the world in ways that international relations theory does not, does not deal with, can't, does not, is not currently equipped to, to deal with. And so part of this is the moral empowerment of weak states. And, and that means something really significant because they are able to push materially powerful states into positions that they would not otherwise take. Historically, it, it is not that surprising for me that it is this group of countries that has pushed for this. Because you're right, Adam, this is an, an, the historical evolution of the non-aligned movement. That's the group of countries that has asked for the loss and damage fund, right? Um, the, the group of 77. And, and uh, I think this, for me, also underscores how this is, a, a, as you were saying, Jared, I guess, a, a challenge on, a, on an enormous scale and unprecedented, but at the same time, also very much kind of historically linked to other phenomena that have put these countries in a subordinated position um, with respect to you know, historical processes of resource extraction, in the past and colonialism and empire and so on. Um, whether that leads to a reconfiguration of the international system, I have no idea. You mentioned a few minutes back that reparations are not really, I mean, there's a, that this uh, accounting science is, or this attribution science is, is uh, misleading, right? Oh, you know, you've exercised your agency or done whatever to produce X amount of damage. And that's misleading because really reparations represent a political uh, resolution of some form. And Daniela, you point out that reparations represent a, 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 an acknowledgement of a kind of a moral case, right? That I have done something wrong. And as a consequence, I am paying you reparations, even if materially it's not any different. The outcomes may not be any different from I'm giving you aid or welfare, right? But there is a difference. I mean, this comes all comes back to this political dynamic, which I think is incredibly problematic in the United States. Europe is a different story. Japan is a different story. The historical emitters are all, they're very, the contingency matters a lot. But in the United States, I think it's very difficult to get reparations, I think Americans will go for loss and damage as aid. I don't think they'll go for loss and damage as reparations. And the reason for this is that they would have to accept guilt. And they would also, to your point just now, Danielle, they would also, Americans would have to put themselves in a subordinate position vis-a-vis -vis the victimized countries. We have done you wrong and you are morally superior to us in this context. You are the victims and we have to subordinate ourselves in moral judgment to you. Um, whereas aid maintains the uh, social hierarchy. You are poor. You are unable to deal with climate change. We will give you money. Even if we call it loss and damage, loss and damage doesn't necessarily imply agency. You're just damaged by climate change. It's this natural force that you can't do anything about. And so we will help you out with this. And so that maintains the social hierarchy. I really like um, what both of you just said here. And I think that's a good place to wrap up. Um, we've had a pretty wide ranging discussion, but I think we've uh, explored some interesting points about the relationship between international political questions 
around what do reparations mean? What does the loss and damage fund mean? How does it fit into existing power dynamics and what sorts of avenues for change are there? But then also how IR scholars and, and international political practitioners can incorporate the insights of attribution science and moral and political philosophy uh, to try and get at these very complex global issues. Uh, um, so thank you guys so much. I mean, should we be doing this on the podcast? Am I off? Like, am I off the rails? No. On the rails. Duck of Minerva.